The sermon title today is Knowing is Half the Battle, uh, based on Psalm 100. I'm hoping uh, I can make a connection between uh, that video about really going, going uh, to the world and what we talked about at the beginning with a challenge to worship and worship from our hearts. There is a, a, a real connection there, and I hope we can see it as we reflect on Psalm 100. Um, so let's uh, begin by reading Psalm 100, and I can read it for us. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks. Bless his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. It is a good day because we have come to you in your presence to praise your greatness. Bless us with your spirit of grace that proceeds from you, the Father and the Son. Grant us your power, intercede for us, and by your spirit, let us give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Savior, for his love and truth. Let us walk before you, God, and run in the way of your commandments. Give us clarity of thought, true knowledge of you, so that we may have cause for deep, heartfelt worship. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts today be acceptable in your sight our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was in elementary school, my parents built their house. It was in this brand new development, uh, like probably like this one. But when we built it there, there were only three houses in the whole neighborhood. It was built back by some, uh, some woods, and um, I would just run, run. We would, if they were digging a new basement, we would play down there. If we were playing in the woods. So my parents, of course, loved this, that I would play outside all day with our, the two other boys in the neighborhood. Uh, there was one hang-up, though. How could they get me to come home? There weren't cell phones, of course, and my boyhood adventures often took me out of their earshot, especially if I was having a really good time. And so my parents, who are wise, they innovated. They bought a big, old, antique bell. And you could hear that bell from a mile away. And the one rule I had playing outside was when I heard that bell ring, I needed to turn and run home. They were calling me home, and I could hear it no matter how far I got. So today, we read Psalm 100, which is a well-known, what we call, call to worship. Um, and, it, and calls to worship function in much the same way. It calls us from um, all the things vying for attention in our lives and calls us to focus on God together. Churches in different times and different places do these differently. This morning we were called to worship by considering what is the heart of worship. Uh, I hope we can illuminate that a little bit. But interestingly, this psalm itself has been used in our churches for a call to worship, whether it was being sang or read. Um, The tune it was sang to became so famous it was called Old 100th. Some of you may be familiar with that is. Um, For those of you who aren't, it's better known as the tune we sing the doxology, praise God, from whom all blessings flow to, um, which I will not sing to spare you from. So that tune was written in 1551. Now that's, a, now that's a classic. And this tune, for so many people, is still kind of the sound they identify with church, right? If, especially more traditional ones. And this song, this psalm, is, is calling us to worship God. 
However, it's not always been so. We haven't always needed to be called to worship. There was once where every moment of every day and every activity we did was imbued with God's presence, and we were aware of it, and we worshiped doing it. However, that communion with God was interrupted and broken by our sin. We must never forget, never forget, sin breaks communion with God and others. After Adam and Eve sinned, it's, it's fascinating, right? They hide. Fallen humanity no longer desires God's presence. And that's why for many of us, sometimes, perhaps, coming to worship can be a chore. Um, or we come, but we have motivations. I hope I really get something out of it today. Sin has caused our alienation with God, and we no longer know him as we should. So this is part of what I do as a missionary, right? Um, people have to be told to come to worship. People have to be told the gospel. As I mentioned, these Muslim people uh, don't know. Because of their ignorance, they cannot worship God. So we go, whether into our community or around the world, to issue a call to worship. But this alienation from God, I, I don't want it to be confused. It's not just innocent. It's actually a willful ignorance. We don't lack knowledge. We as sinners avoid it. The Bible says we took what was obvious about God and creation and traded it for a lie. This is the other way we avoid God's presence. We, we don't outrightly refuse to worship. We worship other things. We find a God suitable to us. Sometimes we even make the God of the Bible more suitable to us. We pick and choose parts of the Bible that suit us, that make us feel better, and ignore the parts that are hard to understand or we don't like. But, but there is good news. God has invited us back into his presence that because God has revealed himself to us and is gracious to us in Christ, we can come and worship him. So today, we are going to look at two things. Uh, what worship can look like and the motivation for our worship. So, as we examine the psalm, you probably noticed, like a lot of psalms, um, this psalm is uh, very repetitive, right? Verse 4 reads, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. So all of those lines say essentially the same thing, right? Three times over. Now, if you're an English teacher, you know you teach children, they need to vary their language. You can't say, use the same words over and over again. Well, that's not what Hebrew grade school teachers taught. Hebrew grade school teachers said, what you need to do is repeat yourself as much as you can because that's how they'll know what you were meaning. And so clearly this, this psalm teaches us to come and worship him. So the first thing we need to know about responding to God is who is to respond to the call to worship. Let's read verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all who feel like it. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, everyone at blessed hope. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, ages 7 and up. Make a joyful noise to the war, Lord, Midwest America. No, no, we know it doesn't say that, right? It says... Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. This is a summons to the whole world. All the peoples of the earth, every man, woman, and child, are supposed to make a joyful noise to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, oftentimes people use this verse as an encouragement to sing, which is great. However, the joyful noise referred to in verse 1 is not a tone-deaf singing, us trying our best. It's actually describing what a king receives when he arrives. If you look at me with uh, Psalm uh, 98.6, you can see it used this way. With trumpets and sounds of horns, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. I actually really like how the NLT puts that particular verse. It says, make a joyful symphony to the Lord, the king. 
The nations are called to worship God because he is their king. God is God, their God objectively, absolutely, and prophetically. God is the objective God of the nations. This means God is everyone's king, whether they know it or not. God is king of everyone in Vinton today as much as he is our king. Um, God is king to the people who came to church today and those who didn't. God is also absolutely king. There is no higher authority than God. And there is no exception in our life to his kingship. It's over all things. This, this psalm also kind of is presenting God's kingship prophetically. Because if you think about it, when this psalm was written, all the earth wasn't making a joyful noise. Israel was faced with enemies from kingdoms all around them. Um, and there was no joyful response coming from Assyria or Egypt about Israel's God. You know, right, Pharaoh only lets Israel go to worship God and go to the promised land because of ten plagues, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, right? But we read God isn't just going to judge the nations. He's inviting them to come with joy to him. Something in the attitude of the nations will be changed. They'll be converted. And this is the first thing missions has to do with worship. Missions exist because the nations have been called to worship God. Of course, we can see this prophecy begin to be fulfilled when Jesus sends out his apostles to disciple the nations. Tell them good news. Tell them the good news. Preach it to the world. And what do we do with good news when we hear it? You celebrate. When someone has a child and you hear that good news, you celebrate. You are joyful. So God's people are now being gathered from every nation, including this one and the one I live in. But there's still a prophetic element because only when all the nations are discipled and the gospel has been preached to every person will this summons to worship be fully answered. So the first relationship we find between worship and missions is, sorry, that's why you shouldn't use an iPad, is calling people to worship, whether it's here, Muslims, neighbors, families. But reading verse 1 in context actually presents a little bit of a problem to understand it. Verse 1 says, make a joyful noise all the earth. Verse 3 says, it is he who made us, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So verse 1 sounds very universal and inclusive to everyone. Verse 2, sorry, verse 3 sounds like very particular, that God's people are a certain group. So um, it's hard to know who is saying verse 3, because, but we can understand it when we think about how God presents himself, that God is king over all, but near to some. God invites everyone to worship, but we are his people. God is universally God, but has a particular people. Um, we often talk about helping people have a relationship with God or starting a relationship with God, and that's actually not technically right. The psalm says everyone has a relationship with God. They've all been called to worship him. The only question is what kind of relationship do they have? Every knee will bow to Jesus someday. The only question is when and how. Will they do it now, joyfully, or later, conquered? But this is why missions, we bring good news. Because we're telling people, you don't have to be his enemy. You can come home. You can be sheep in his pasture. Um, my friend Muslim, who I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the last nights of Ramadan, we got together, actually, I think the night we took that photo, and I was explaining Christianity and the Christian gospel to him. And, and of course, a lot was surprising him. But what surprised me is what he was most shocked at. So we were talking about prayer, and I figured, okay, I'll show you the Lord's Prayer where Christ teaches us to pray. Um, Muslims in general respond better to Scripture because they have a very high view of God's Word. Um, 
And so he was reading it in Arabic, and he slammed down my phone, and he said, this is the problem with you. I know it now. And I go, what? He goes, you think you can talk to God as a father. And I was shocked. And then I realized, and I looked at him and I said, yes, this is the problem. You don't have a relationship with God where you can speak to him as a father. Muslim only knows God as judge and master, and in his sin will be judged and can't call that kind of a God a father. So who is saying, verse 3, who are the sheep of his pasture? Certainly, originally, this was Israel singing in the temple. They would sing, our God is king of all the nations, but we are his people. I think the best way to understand it is to recognize that God's people are now all who make a joyful noise to him. It was Israel. It is now all God's people making up the church, and one day will be everyone on the new heavens and the new earth. So that's who should worship. But let's look at what it means to respond to God in worship. Just like the nations have to worship God, we have to worship God as he asks because there's one God. So let's examine this psalm and see what it says about right worship. Some of you, when I say the words, let's worship God in the right way, go on high alert because that sounds like a person who's about to say something really stifling and traditional. Now, I'm not here to talk about the worship wars today because I'd like to be invited back again. But worship is at the heart of our problem. Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, what were they doing? They said, God said this, the devil said this, and I get to choose. This is so often our attitude when it comes to worship. We define good worship about how I felt, if it matched my preference, um, if it's what I'm used to or what I grew up with, or if it attracts people. However, none of these ultimately are what defines right worship. We must worship God as he wants. Notice verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. This is actually why we call church a worship service, right? Our worship, our aim in worship is fundamentally to serve God and honor him as our primary audience. So let me make another comment about how this kind of worship, worshiping God as we're asked to, matters for missions. Um, worship really does matter, and how we join in really does matter. Let me give you two concrete ways. One, how you worship matters to your kids. Dropping them off at Sunday school is good, but it's not enough. You can't impart a spiritual life to your children you don't have. You must worship. I, I hope that makes sense. And, and we can extend this overseas um, or even in your community from the church. The American church and our churches can only export the love of God we have inside. If our Christian faith is weak and materialistic, well, then our church's worship will reflect that. And our evangelism and missions will reflect that. But if we have joyful maturity, our missions will be strong and reflect that as well. This goes whether it's here in Vinton or internationally. But internationally, I want you to know something. The world's Christians are looking at you. They think you have figured out worship. They think you know what you're doing. And I have every reason to assume you do. And they are going to try and replicate it wherever they are, whether that be the Middle East, Africa, or China. And I will tell you one thing, it is a little difficult for them to do that when they see images of megachurches. But anyways, enough of that. Let's go back to the psalm. What kind of worship does God call for? It calls for corporate, joyful, and thankful worship. Worship, in this psalm at least, is corporate. Notice the plural language. Make a joyful noise, all the earth. 
It is he who made us. We are his. Verse 4 describes worship as the gathering at the temple. Worship of God is not an individual matter. I know this cuts against the American individualism, which I come from. And I know in America, you may often hear someone say, I'm a Christian, I just don't really go to church. I love Jesus, but, you know, the church and religion, I'm not really into that. I'm sure you've heard someone say that, am I right? Well, I know that's common, but that's not the way the Bible talks. As I said, we pick and choose parts of the Bible, right, to create a God we're comfortable with, a God um, who's not like the one in the Bible. But I want you to know the church isn't man, a man-made idea. It's Jesus Christ's idea. He put pastors over it, put deacons to serve in it, and evangelists to grow it. The church is Jesus' body. So when someone says, I love Jesus, but not the church, they're basically saying, I love Jesus, I just don't really love Jesus. It's an oxymoron. I mean, and it's especially odd because uh, if I've already defined the people who love Jesus are the people who come to make a joyful noise to them, that person has already excluded themselves from God's people. People who think like this are woefully under-discipled or they have woefully little love for Jesus in their hearts. Right? What What does the Apostle John say? He says, if you love God, you will love your brother. You will love the church. Look around. This is the people of God. So I think another way individualism can show up in our spirituality is actually in a way, uh, it's a very, in a very good thing. The great sacrament of our day as Protestants is the individual quiet time. Now, I'm not saying those are bad. I'm not saying stop doing that. But I am saying that they are, as important as they are, corporate worship is that important too. So, The other thing we need to know about corporate worship is it's active. Look at all the verbs. Make a noise, serve, come, enter. Too often, the church service, as we kind of fight about what the church service is supposed to be like, we divide into two camps. Some of us want worship to be a lot like a concert. Others want worship to be a lot like a classroom. Neither of those things is corporate worship. Because both of those things, it's the activity of a few for the benefit of a group who are consuming information, music, whatever else. No, we're a body. We're all to be active in worship. Now, we all don't have the same role. I'm the one up here speaking today. No one else is. Typically, it's Matt. I'm not singing. But each of us has our role. And from start to finish, from the call to worship to the closing prayer is worship. Now, so I'm saying it's, it's not just the singing part. It includes that. It's not just not that part. So let's think about it. How can you listen to a sermon with a worshipful attitude? Step one, stay awake, right? Um, how can you give your tithes with a worshipful heart? Are you actively giving? Are you actively listening? Are you actively singing and serving? You know, I know this is hard. I know this can be difficult, Um, it's hard for my wife who often is watching our child in our church that lasts for two hours with no child care and a hot room, right? It's, it can be work to do this, but this is the good news that our worship is fundamentally about God, but he blesses us in it. It does feel like work, paying attention, keeping our kids from exploding, but it is important and it is serious work. The preacher who comes before you 
is bringing the words of your king to you. The, the worship leaders are leading you in songs God hears in heaven. And, and you, you, not me, not just me, you are discipling the nations. This is serious. It's not somber, though, right? Because it also says God wants our worship to be joyful. God doesn't want the worship of those who came because they had to, or I showed up, that's enough. No, we are to come joyfully with singing. So I hope it's clear I'm not against emotions. Clearly not. I just think God is king of your emotions too. So potentially, maybe you need to hear if, if you don't like singing, you should probably still sing because God likes it. Just look at verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. It's hard, to, it's hard to even think about that because when we think about service, when I think about service, I think about all the time I worked at a subway and I served a lot of people. I did it for seven years and I did almost no service with gladness there. I did service with begrudging reluctance for $8 an hour, right? And, and service in many ways is associated with slavery, right? This is this kind of the same word. But we don't serve a despot. We serve a good king. Our service is sweet. And our king is our father. So I'll mention one more part here because it's so often mentioned in this psalm. Uh, Thanksgiving, right? This is a psalm for Thanksgiving. We are supposed to sing it to thanks God with it. Thanksgiving is where we start. But when you talk about Thanksgiving, you actually need to define your terms. When I say thank you, I'm always thanking someone for something, right? But, and this is why Amy and I talk about this every now and again for fun. This is why atheists at Thanksgiving make no sense. What is he talking about, atheists at Thanksgiving? Well, I know there are plenty of atheists who celebrate Thanksgiving, but they don't do it how they should, because an atheist Thanksgiving would look a little more like this. Mom would work really hard to cook the turkey all day, and then they would sit around the table, and Dad would look at his kids and go, okay, before we eat, everyone, I want everyone to share one thing they're thankful for, that the universe has randomly dispersed you for no reason today. And then they would bless the food, right? They would say a great atheist prayer like, thank you, cold, dark, empty universe for this food we're about to partake, for our meaningless lives that will end in a black abyss of nothing. Amen. Fortunately, for the atheists at Thanksgiving, they don't have to watch atheist football, which is even worse, because in atheist football, both teams play by whatever rules they want to that feel right for them at the right time. So, okay, what... What is he talking about this for? <laughs> so true worship, we need to know who we're thanking and what we're thanking them for. Because without that, our worship can be very passionate. We can be really into it, but it's just as confused as atheist thanksgiving. So if, if you don't learn anything else, you, know, you now no, no longer need to worry about what atheist thanksgiving's like. It's a little bleak. So this is where the other half of the psalm comes in. Let's look at Psalm 100 to provide the answer of who we are thanking. So, put briefly, it's God, of course, in Christ, who we must know and worship. So look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. This is another little trick in Hebrew poetry. Um, their poetry doesn't really rhyme, at least, I don't know, Hebrew, so I don't know how it would um, but he's tipping us off to his main point. He, they use these really specific structures when they write. There are seven commands in this psalm, if you look carefully. There are three commands before the command to know and three commands after. The command to know God is also preceded by a command to come 
and it's also followed by a command to come to God. So the psalmist is trying to get you to know something. He's saying knowing is the central point. Knowledge is the foundation of worship. As my sermon title says, knowing is half the battle. Does anyone know where that comes from? G.I. Joe, right? Now, it's a little weird, if you think about it, that a cartoon about selling uh, action figures to little boys like me always ended with a really strange PSA. Um, I, I was watching some of their PSAs this week, and they give really interesting advice. It ranged from things like, it's always better to tell the truth. Teamwork is what you need to win, not arguments. Frozen lakes may not be totally frozen. And there's one I won't describe to you. Oh, sorry, they also say, never take medicine without an adult present. Um, so now the guy, you know, talking about seriousness in worship is talking about G.I. Joe. We're joyful, right? And, and there's a really strange one where uh, they explain how to stop a bloody nose. Um, but the more you know, right? So the reason they did this, I learned, was uh, in the 80s and early 90s, kids shows, there was this really big push that kids shows had to be good for kids. If kids were going to watch TV all day, it had to be something good for them. Well, G.I. Joe knew their show may not make the cut because it was pretty violent and basically about selling action figures. So they figured, actually, what if we team up with someone and make every show a little PSA at the end? So they, they teamed up with the American National Children's Safety Council and highlighted practical dangers they wanted children to know because this knowledge could potentially save their lives or at least from a bloody nose, right? So this is kind of... Um, the way missions and evangelism are related to PSAs. We're providing the necessary knowledge to worship. When it comes to worship, G.I. Joe was right. We're knowing is half the battle. Today in the church, another thing we separate, um, I'm just up here, I guess, just getting out everything I don't want us to do anymore, huh? Um, we separate the head and the heart, right? Um, and, I, and I'm not doing that. The first half of this sermon was all about feeling and doing and singing. This one will be about knowing, We'll even say things like, you know, too much knowing or theology, that'll ruin your spiritual life. That doesn't make sense. The Bible doesn't talk this way either, in case you're wondering. True worship is founded on truth. Now, just because we feel it doesn't mean we know it. Now, also, true knowledge leads to true worship. Just because you have head knowledge doesn't mean you're mature or have faith. The Bible says, it does say, you should be able to move from milk to meat. You should be capable of mature thinking on Christ and the gospel. But the call to worship always presupposes a call to know God. And saving knowledge always leads to worship, right? These things are together. They are not separate. You don't do one without the other. So knowledge provides us the content of worship. Worship is knowing is half the battle. So verses 3 and 5 give us the knowledge we need to worship. So, first, we must know who God is and why he's worthy of worshiping. So, if we're going to respond to the call to worship, we got to know who God is. Verse 3 says, know the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, we are his. So, we know God as creator, redeemer, and Christ. So, when the verse says the Lord, right, in all caps, it's identifying God's special name, Yahweh. We sometimes pronounce it Jehovah. So, it's saying Jehovah is God. In order to worship, we need to know who God is. Because Mormons, in my context, Muslims, all say they worship God. And those groups even say they worship the God of the Bible. You see, there are many gods calling today for worship. So if we don't know who we're worshiping, we 
can't know if we're rightly worshiping. So the first thing we know is we worship the God who made us. We worship a creator. And this is why, again, all nations must worship him because he, he made them. God made all nations. God is their creator. And by this, I mean he's their owner. The God you worship made you. He is the only person who gets to define himself. God defines you, your identity, and who you are. The Lord is the only living God. He's infinitely perfect, self-existent, self-sufficient. He's the fountain of all being, and he is God. He's not like you. He's not like me. He's incomprehensible and independent, and God made everything out of nothing. We often don't think about all creation should tell us about God because we live on a sphere circling a giant ball of fire going 67,000 miles an hour, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, and you don't feel that. If I were to describe that to you in a sci-fi novel, you would go, ah, that's too unbelievable. Come back with something more realistic. We live in an unbelievable world, and the only reason you believe it is because you live here. Yet, we den- people deny there's a creator. We say, yeah, the universe, it happened. Matter created itself. But we know we worship the creator, and this is why we thank God, because he's responsible for all of it. Now, God didn't make everything and walk away. He sustains it every moment, every second by his word. In Christ, every galaxy, ant, colony, and human being holds together. God invented every taste, mountain, and animal you enjoy. God invented every inventor who invented every technology you benefit from. God gives you breath every second as a gift. God gives every person in every nation heartbeats. God is creator. He knows something. He knows his generosity is so great, we'll never be able to sufficiently thank him. But because of this gift, that's why our worship is fundamentally thanksgiving. Now, there's something else. God is also your redeemer. He remade you. The communion that we talked about that was broken, the way we spiritually died, God is remade. Paul puts it like this. You are Christ's workmanship, created in God to do good works. God owns everything, but how are we as people? We're not, we're not as people, we're not slaves he owns. We're not enemies he's captured. He, the, what is the metaphor the psalmist gives us? We are the sheep of his pasture. Does this remind you of any other psalm? Maybe a really, really, really famous one. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lay down by still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God loves you. God cares for you. God cares for you like a shepherd does his sheep. This is the most personal imagery the psalmist can use. The shepherd lived with his flock, provided everything for them from food, protection, to medical care. Now, there's a problem. We often think about a, a pasture like we see here in beautiful green Iowa. It's not, it's not the pastures these sheep were being led to. They were in a desert with blotches of green. Think more like that. God takes us from a barren land and provides for us and saves us. So we're, we're his. He has every right over us, but he's giving us guidance, protection, and care. God's presence, worship, is a glorious place of safety and refreshment. So today, I know you may lack some joy. You may be going through things that cause you to doubt his provision, but know the Lord is God over your life despite what you may see. I think the best way to help you understand this is by pointing to you how God has identified himself in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that's how God revealed himself to us. 
We don't worship abstract divinity, timeless truths or anything like that. And many people, as I mentioned, my friend Muslim, cannot accept this. But we, by faith, know Jesus is God despite his humility, despite what the outside looked like. Your shepherd, don't let him where he leads you cause you to stumble and doubt him because he's the crucified one, the one who was scourged on a tree, who had a crown of thorns he wore, hung on a cross, pierced with nails, buried in a tomb. That is God, and he's made us, and without him nothing was made. Christ's death is the ultimate evidence of God's purpose above what we see, because contrary to all evidence at the time, Christ was winning an ultimate victory. So as we come to the final section, let's look. The psalm is organized in a call to worship, a reason for worship, a call to worship, and the final reason for our praise. The first reason, as we said, is because of who God is. We owe him that praise because he's our creator. The second reason we praise him is because he's praiseworthy. Let's look at the reasons Psalm 100 verse 5 gives us. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. This point may be simple, but it is profound. The Lord is good. A commentator and professor of mine uh, pointed it out this way. The God of Psalm 100, the reason for his character and praise becomes apparent in Psalm 100, verse 5. The Lord is good. The king who is robed in majesty, armed with strength, is good. The God of vengeance is good. The great king above all gods is good. The God who will judge all peoples fairly is good. The Lord, who every god must bow to, is good. The God who has revealed his righteousness to every nation is good. The God who punished them when they went wrong is good. The God who made us and made us his people is good. And that is why we shout for joy with gladness and come before him with songs and give thanks and bless his name. Unless we fear, God will change his mind. The psalm says his love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. We're secure here in his goodness. God will not change his mind. This is why the psalm is for all true worshipers in all of time. Our joy is founded on this communion of God, reestablished in Christ for now and forever. He is our God. So I hope you see this knowledge isn't dry. This isn't a class. The more we learn about God and the more we learn about him from his word and creation, the more vocabulary and joy we will have access to to praise him with. So because God has revealed himself to us as good and gracious in Christ, we come to him in worship. So I will leave you today with this. The picture of your God as the shepherd, as the psalmist says, the good shepherd. Your shepherd is the one crucified and scourged and spit on, crowned with thorns and hung on a cross. He is God, but he's not just God, he's good. He went there as our good shepherd to lay his life down for the sheep. And his promise is that he knows his sheep and all of his sheep will know him. The ones he laid his life down for. And he actually says to us, I have other sheep not here. But there will be one flock of all the nations. But knowing our shepherd and his knowledge of us is what can fuel our worship and our missions until all join in singing with us to our God and King. Amen. I'll close our time in prayer today. <sighs> Heavenly Father, God and King, I pray that this time has been a time where your word has blessed your people, that we may bless you in worship. I pray that our worship 
will be good works that the nations will glorify you for. I pray that you will gather your people out of Vinton and from every country. I pray that your love will grow in our hearts that we may worship you and serve you, not here today only, but from now until we see you face to face. We pray in the name of our good shepherd, Christ. Amen.